Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our very own guests and guest hosts. Or maybe you wouldn't mind reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And finally, you can stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram or the app formerly known as Twitter, at AutofocusLit. All right, that's the advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I'm the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Our episode of The Lives of Writers today is hosted by Sarah Rausch. Sarah Rausch is the author of the book-length essay, XO, from us at Autofocus Books. She's also the author of the story collection, What Shines From It, from Alternating Current Press. Her book reviews and author interviews have been featured in the LA Review of Books, New City Lit, Lambda Literary, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Sarah in conversation with Christine Sneed. Christine Sneed is the author of the new story collection, Direct Sunlight, in addition to three novels and two previous story collections, most recently, Please Be Advised and The Virginity of Famous Men. She is also the editor of the collection of short fiction, Love in the Time of Time's Up. All right, let's get to it. This is Sarah Rausch's conversation with Christine Sneed. You know, I I wish I had a routine aside from um, usually in the morning, I like to go out for a long walk or a quasi run. Um, since I'm in Pasadena, California, it's other than the last several months from November through May, essentially, we had unseasonably cool and cloudy and rainy weather. Uh, it's generally really nice. So I also find that it helps me not be crazy by (laughs) going outside and moving and (laughs) not sitting in my office 10 hours, 15 hours a day. Uh, so that that's pretty much how the morning, and I try to get some work done on my teaching and my administrative job since I have a few different positions, part-time positions two at Northwestern as a faculty director of the MFA program in the School of Professional Studies, and then also a, a teach for the program. And and I also teach for Regis University's low residency MFA. Okay. But they, they in they're in Colorado? I can't remember. Yeah, it's in Denver. Yeah. But they're they're they have a lot more local faculty. So I think they're focusing on having more faculty who are closer so they don't have, you know, it's it's expensive to run a program like that so yeah for sure yeah and um I'm just I try to get some writing done in the morning I I uh we can talk more about that you know but, yes yeah I yeah. was gonna ask like how do so since you're juggling a couple of part-time jobs and just being alive and being a human and trying to do the things that feel good for you like where does writing fit into that do you have a regular schedule or is it more kind of depending on the day it depends on the day I mean I I've just found, and I've had to come to terms with this a little bit. I think 
having, I just, since I just published Direct Sunlight, that's my sixth book, but my seventh book, technically, if you count the anthology that I edited that came out last October, um, I, I've written several novels that I haven't published in the last several years. And, and it's not because I don't think they're publishable. I think it's, as you probably noticed with corporate publishing, um, there's a lot of focus on platform and, and sales records. And I'm what's known as a mid-list author. So even though I had terrific agents that I was working with, I've had a few different ones. They weren't able to sell the books that I was writing after 2014. And so I just ended up placing my work with, with university or small presses, which has been the case with these last three books. Yes. I know we've talked about that. So it's, you know, I think it's a fate of a lot of writers, especially of fiction and poetry. I mean, it's most poets don't publish with a big press, but the, the expectations for a book of poetry are different as far as commercial success. Yeah. So there's a lot of factors, of course, that are involved, but I've just not been as single-minded about writing an entirely new novel because, um, you know, it's, it's a huge time commitment. And, and because I am teaching for a few different schools, I just find myself less, I guess, maybe some of it's just like less optimistic. I mean, like, I think mm. that's just the, the honest thing to say is just, I'm not, I'm like, is this going to sell? Like, I don't know. So it, yes. it my enthusiasm wanes, um, but I love writing short stories and I'm still doing that pretty regularly. But I was yeah. also writing screenplays for several years. I was learning how oh. to do that when I moved here in 2018. So that also changed my focus a bit. And um, there's been a lot of factors, I think, that have influenced what I write and what I don't write and how much energy I have for it. Yeah. You must be a person who who does really well with different things going on <laughs> and like learning new things and trying new things. And maybe that's part of the appeal of a short story, right? You're switching characters, you're switching plots, you're switching yeah. Uh, tone and style as you as you go you can be very playful because they're short and kind of contained whereas a novel like even the even the most quickly written novel takes a long time you know unless you're one of those people who can crank them out in a month which I always <laughs> like how, how do people no. do this like, no I don't know <laughs> I, I can write pretty quickly but I just no I'm I'm really a I guess I am a perfectionist in the sense that I don't want to spend a lot of time rewriting sentences. So I, mm. I try to get them right pretty early in the, in the process. Yeah. So if you're going slowly, you know, on the sentence level, that's slowly enough. It takes a little bit of time. Um, well, I wasn't planning on asking this, but I'm curious, these novels that haven't been published, are they just like, just, are they sitting in a desk drawer? Are they, yeah, do you essentially, <laughs> yeah. do you have any plans to try to publish them with smaller presses now that you're kind of going, moving in that direction? You know, I don't know because frankly, the, to be pretty transparent here, this, the independent publicist I worked with, um, said, you know, you you really have to try to publish again with the corporate press because you just don't have the reach that you should have. Like it's, you don't have the money. They don't have the money to do a huge amount of, um, publicity. I had three of my last four, my first four books, three of them were reviewed in the New York times. And one of them was a cover review. These, these new books have not, they, no one was interested at the New York times from what we could tell. Um, and there were a couple of 
mentions in the Chicago Tribune, and then there was an, a review in the Minneapolis Star Tribune for my novel and memos, Please Be Advised, which my editor basically placed. So there's just, you know, he had a contact who he'd reviewed books. They sort of did a quid pro quo, I think, to a certain extent. So they, mm-hmm. you know, he was able to call in a favor. And I, you know, it, it is humbling because I had had a lot of attention with the books that I published with Bloomsbury. And I've also won, I don't know, probably like six or seven literary prizes. Uh, and so I, I just have found that publishing with smaller presses that don't have the influence or the distribution, it's, you, you just have to settle for the fact that it's probably not going to be read very much. It's not going to make you much money. You're going to lose money if you are working. Like I hired a publicist. She's been great. And I've worked there for every book and she doesn't charge me as much as she certainly could. Um, but you're going to lose money. You just are, unless you get really, really lucky. So, and also not to include all the time you yourself spent trying to promote it as long as, and also writing it. Yes. Yes. You know, writing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always think like, don't, don't count the dollars. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, that's never going to yeah. work out. <laughs> and I think like these three books are as good as the three, the four that I published with the corporate press. They are like, I'm almost positive. So I've written other things that I know aren't as good. So the fact that these three books, the anthology and then the novel and memos and then the new collection, Direct Sunlight, I'm like, these are as good. And the fact that they're not getting into bookstores, really, they're not, other than where I'm doing events, I have to rely on word of mouth. And I'm hoping it helps, but, and it has to a certain extent. I have really good friends and, um, you know, some people who are fans of my work, but it's not, it's not a huge number of people and you can't underestimate the amount of time and money that you just like a big press will put into a lead title, you know, like a lot of money, many, many, many thousands of dollars. Yeah. The amount of money and just attention that gets kind of put behind the bigger titles. Like you can't, you're never going to get that with a smaller press that, that seems that makes a lot of sense. There's an important, it's important work. Like, I'm glad I have the books. Like, it's better than not. Yeah. Like, the novels that I have sitting on my hard drive, I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, I, we did, like, I, as I said, I've had different agents who took me on with these, with new novels and tried to sell them. And they were really enthusiastic and they thought they would sell, but they didn't. And fiction now is mm. not selling, really, unless you're a debut or you have some sort of platform or you're a celebrity. I mean, there are yes. some exceptions to that, but that's pretty much the case. Yes. So you have a Substack called bookish and you talk about a lot of these things that we're, we're kind of discussing right now about your own experiences and then other experiences and just what the publishing marketplace looks like and, and what's kind of happening. And so I'm curious, do you have any kind of, uh, I'm sure you do. <laughs> what are your thoughts <laughs> behind like this trend in fiction not selling as well and then just the type of fiction that's being kind of brought to market is it that they that the publishers are picking up books because they think they can make money and then they don't when they publish them and then that becomes like a perpetuating cycle or is there something else going on do readers just not read fiction in the same way because we're attached to our phones and we watch a lot more TV <laughs> and listen to more podcasts. Like 
what do you think's going on there? It's obviously a cultural thing and yeah. then maybe a business thing too. So I'm curious what you think, because it seems like you know a lot about this stuff. Well, I, I've observed, you know, as a writer, and also I teach a publishing industry class at Northwestern, um, but I've observed just over the last 13 years since my first book came out in November 2010, that there have been more and more books by celebrities or influencers and in quote, quote, unquote, you know, and I've learned that publishers and editors go after these people. So they're trying through the corporate sort of mindset of profit over everything. Like, how can we make money, mm-hmm. you know, instead of yes. this sort of interesting literary culture that, you know, we saw mostly for the first half of the 20th century. But then, of course, when the conglomerates started buying up publishing houses, I think in the 60s and 70s, that really started to change. And especially in the last 15 or 20 years, I think it's been a huge change with the big five. It used to be the big six. And before that, it was just all these imprints who were functioning, I think, mostly on their own and acquiring books that their editors who were literary tastemakers in some cases were passionate about. But now editors lose their jobs if they take a risk on a book that they really believe in and it doesn't perform. Well, the thing is, if you don't have sales and marketing behind the book, it's not going to do well, probably, unless there's a miracle and the author somehow has this huge network and or there's luck hand selling or I mean, there's obviously there are ways that you can become a success, but it's just not likely to happen for most of us if we don't have a huge marketing push. And my partner often says, he's like, well, it must just be a really good book. I'm like, it, yeah, it can. It might be a really good book, but it that's actually not important in some ways. It's just like who's reading what and buzz takes on, it takes on a life yes. of its own yes. there. And you can say like, look at like no shade to E.L. James, you know, clearly her <laughs> books, um, 50 shades of gray spoke to a lot of people yes. uh, who were looking for that sort of, vicarious experience but it's I think you would probably say that's not like a work of literature that is going to stand the test of time maybe it will I don't know but it's not like it's not like E.L. James is Flannery O'Connor yeah so yes yeah Yeah. so that you know the the people are in publishing because they're beholden to CEOs who are who are beholden to stockholders oh well let's pay a million dollars for this untested debut because a we're insane, but B it'll make, it'll maybe make us a they ton of money and Instagram followers. But so meanwhile, don't publish yeah. an author who has solid literary chops and pay them a $30,000 advance because who gives a crap about that book? Like yeah. if you have a low advance, which would be actually in fact a sane advance, you're not going to be, you're just the people look at it in publishing and think like that's, that book is not important. So the more you pay for a book, the more you're pressured then as a publishing house to put marketing and a ton of energy behind it, despite what literary merit it has or doesn't have. So it's this, you know, I mean, I know some people are probably listening. If they're listening to this, they're like, well, there's also this, this, and this. There are a lot of factors, but a much saner model would be don't overpay for a book because we can't guarantee like authors can't guarantee that a book's going to do hugely well. We can try to make it, you know, we can put it out there as much as 
possible at the risk of alienating our friends and family members <laughs> and, our, and whoever else if we're constantly posting on yeah, social media. Spamming but, our Facebook pages you, yeah, with, with our yeah. own books. <laughs> but you're right, though, as far as like TV, movies, streaming, everything's streamable, podcasts, you know, we just there's so many other ways to amuse ourselves. Um so it is, it's harder and people like fiction is notoriously hard to sell because of nonfiction, unless you already have a platform, but nonfiction is not as hard to sell because it's topical. So you can find a yes. group of people who are interested in running an ultra marathon, or you yes. can find a group of people who, you know, want the latest memoir from the top chef in New York or wherever Paris or Marseille or wherever it is. So those audiences are easier to locate. And you can target um, group, you know, special interest groups like, oh, there's a cooking school. Like we let's try to do an event there with the chef or, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's fiction is harder, especially literary fiction. Now, apparently I've read in the last couple of months about how editors and agents are like, oh, it's just people. They just aren't able to sell it. But I don't think it's because the books aren't good in many cases. It's just, there's such a bias now increasingly against sort of, I think of it as like slow fiction, like slow food, mm. you know, yes. it's, it yeah. builds over time and it's character driven rather than plot driven. Of course, you know, all this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely thinking that as like a, a fiction has the potential to reach diverse audiences and and like touch or affect people who are very different from each other but how do you actually reach those audiences like what's the whereas with nonfiction it being topical great you know your audience you can like target them whereas with fiction you you can't so it becomes this kind of like let's get it out there and just see what happens but maybe that's happening and that seems like it's happening less and less and maybe, yeah it yeah. is there's really a big marketing campaign because so many presses who have a, you know, like big presses who have a big budget, they can send hundreds of galleys to bookstores and tastemakers and other people in the industry who, you know, will, the more in people tweet about it, there's net galley where you can read it, uh, but you have to pay, like that's an expensive thing. So small presses can't compete with big presses. Like yeah. if you have to pay hundreds of dollars, if not thousands, if you want to sign up for net galley as a publisher. Yeah. And then, like, for example, I did a Goodreads giveaway at 50 ebooks for Please Be Advised on, and that was like 120 bucks. I had to yeah. pay for that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was, ended, I was yeah. surprised. I, I think it used to be free back in the day mm -hmm. to do a giveaway, and then it they, was. they changed it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, everything. I mean, that's the thing. Like, that's a whole other topic. But yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. so, like, tired of everyone trying to make as much possible money as they can from, <laughs> from people like us who are, like, not rolling in the dough, you know, it's yes. any artist, you're preying on people's <clears throat> dreams and, and their ostensible gullibility. I mean, it's sad. I, I'm it, anyway, I just feel like it's hard enough to be a writer, but to actually sell books is getting harder and harder. Yes. And this, yeah, I know this is sort of a downer, but <laughs> and I will say I'm not <laughs> planning to stop. I'm not. Yes, I just feel yeah. a lot of anger and, and mm. exhaustion and on some days a sense of futility, but I keep going. Yes. And I think you just have to face that. Like, I, and I have been thinking about that a lot, as you mentioned, bookish, my Substack. like not every piece is about the industry, but I've, I've been able to observe a lot as now being sort of marginalized as a small press writer. 
Um, Northwestern University Press, like for example, they publish Direct Sunlight, as you know, their entire sales and marketing and their publicists that hold all of those people quit like this past fall. So I had, I had, I fortunately I had Cheryl, oh, no. yeah. but you know, I got like almost no pre-pub. I got book, book list. So there was, and Cheryl mm. got a number of other things, my publicist friend and the person I work with, but yes, the press itself, like my editor was great. She did what she could, but you just, I mean, like if you don't have anyone helping get your book out other than yourself and one overworked publicist who is, you know, independent and works with other authors too, yeah. It's not, it's just not, it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It's nowhere near the same as what would happen otherwise if you were. With and a big so, press. Yeah. Even then though, if you're not yeah. a lead title. <laughs> I was going to say, I wondered like when you were with Bloomsbury for what well, it was little known facts, the virginity of famous men and Paris, he said, is that those were all Bloomsbury? Yeah. And they also published a paperback of my very first book, Portraits of a Few of the People I've okay. Cry. They did do the paperback. I could. Yeah. I have the hardcover, so I wasn't. I wasn't yeah, that sure. was the that was AWP's Grace Paley Prize. So yes. that they did. They did. University of Massachusetts Press did a beautiful hardcover for that book. Yes. Yeah. So Bloomsbury did all, but so Bloomsbury did the paperback and then hardcover and paperback of the other three, or not of Virginity of Famous Men. They didn't. You know, that's another story. They did not do the paperback. It was basically going into production. And then we found out that Barnes & Noble was only ordering a small number of copies. And so they canceled it. Bloomsbury canceled the paperback. Oh, wow. Just based on Barnes & Noble's yes, order. Yes, because they're the only national chain now because Borders, of course, went under. But also, like, yes. the problem with Barnes & Noble, like, they'd done, even with the book that was reviewed on the cover of the New York Times, Book Review, they had ordered some copies, but then they just sat in their warehouse. Oh. So if they're not actually on the shelves, <laughs> yeah. people are not going to friggin' buy them. So, I mean, these yes. are all things I didn't know when I was first writing, because I'm glad I didn't know it, because it's just demoralizing, you know. But other people be like, well, you got that review. You got a lot of reviews. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's true. You just, you can't know what your expectations are until you're in the moment. Yes. And, it, and all things considered, I'm really happy the book got the attention. The books that I've published have gotten the attention they've gotten. You just, but, you know, with small presses, it's been different. Like, you just, it's. You, you're not going to, it's not going to be the same because you're not going to be considered seriously in most cases by newspapers who yeah, are by really the doing books. Media. Yeah, yeah. They're not doing as many book reviews to begin with anymore. So, you know, and I have several books, so they, I understand why they want to focus on newer writers or writers who are already really well established and best selling or whatever it is. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think most writers, like I just wrote a post in, last week that I put up, I think most writers are kind of unsatisfied, like all the time, mm. one way or another, <laughs> like one way or another, they feel they're being shortchanged. So, and yes. it's not a good thing. Like it's yeah. not, it's not, a, it doesn't make for a happy life. So you just have to like, okay, I'm going to write this short story. It's going to be great fun. But when I think about all this other stuff, that's when the hammer comes down a bit psychologically. I'm just kind of like, you know, yes. <laughs> like this is hard. <laughs> And why do we do this? Am I really a masochist? But at the same time, I'm like, I love writing. I love yes. writing. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately what it comes down to with most people who, who I know who have stuck it out as writers. It's that, you know, you take your successes when you get them, but really you're doing it because you love it and you can't imagine not doing right. it because it's just, it's the thing you want to be doing. So regardless of, you know, whether or not it's, you're going to get a, an agent and a, a big press 
a big book deal or you're going to publish with a small press, like you're doing it for the love of it. And that is great. <laughs> that is great too. Yes. I mean, book deals, you know, reasonable size book deals and the media outlets covering, you know, mid-list authors would also be great, but. <laughs> well, but right. You published your two books with, it. with indie presses, with, yeah, uh, with Michael's indie, press. Yes. Auto with Focus. Autofocus and Alternating Current. And, you know, I, I knew going in that they were small presses and I was going to be you know, I'd be happy to sell what I sold. And I wasn't imagining I would get a New York Times book review or anything like that. And, and I think that that that's okay. I mean, I don't know if I always want to stay in that, in that place. But I also am like, if I do, I do. And and I think that that's like, I think a lot of authors end up juggling that kind of quandary, unless they, you know, hit kind of a trajectory, and they, they take off, and it kind of stays that way, which... I guess does right. happen. As you're saying, like these, you know, not everything is an absolute, of course, like there are exceptions to all of these, all of these things, but it definitely is. Um, I think, but I wonder though, even the people who really, you know, hit it big and take off, like, I'm sure they have their moments of doubt too, regardless of like what their book sales are, or what the reviews look like. It's still hard to be a writer, right? It's still a, a job that has a lot of kind of self-doubt, but also kind of, enjoyment and like there's something right. that kind of drives the wanting to do it the desire to do it um yeah okay so actually this is maybe a good segue into <laughs> the joy of writing um <laughs> into tell me a little bit about what you what your childhood was like and what your reading habits were like as a child and why you decided to become a writer to pursue writing as a career <laughs> that's a you know that's a question that I don't get asked very often it's interesting that you ask that because I I think about that a fair amount. Both my parents are pretty serious readers. Um, so we always had books in the house. Um, I, my mom used to take me to the library and I would check out a lot of books and read them pretty quickly. I just loved it. And I, I didn't think I could really be a writer though, till I was in college. It just didn't seem like something. I think I felt like I had to have permission. I think a lot of people, women, maybe especially feel that way. And I didn't even know MFA programs existed until I was applying for one because I was just going to apply for an MA in literature. And then I'd done a, I'd taken a poetry class at Ragdale. I was living in Chicago and uh, I was taking this class with David Wojohn, who was on leave from Indiana university, their MFA program. And that was in the fall of 1994. And I said, would you be, would you recommend me for, I'm applying for this MA. And he's like, why are you not applying for MFA programs? That's what you should be doing if you want to write poetry. Uh, so I ended up going to Indiana because they gave me the best deal. And I had applied for eight different, pro I'd applied to eight different programs. And I think I got into four or five and, uh, and Indiana had a full ride with teaching. So I was trained to teach college level writing and then also given a small stipend and then tuition. So it was I'd left without debt, which if yeah. you can do oh, that. that's amazing. Yeah, especially yeah. for an MFA program. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, you went to Pacific University. I know that's, that's of course, how we met. And yeah. a really, really good low residency program. But you probably didn't graduate debt-free. No, well, I, I did, but only because my grandmother had... Um, given me my inheritance before she died. So I used it to pay for my, Oh, okay. Well, that's <laughs> that good that you very, very lucky yeah, with loans. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I just um, started writing seriously when I was studying in France in my junior year because I was a French major in college. Ah, and, um, that explains some of your, uh, yeah. your <laughs> Paris-based stories yeah. and kind of interest yeah. in France and French things, Francophile things. Yeah. And then I just ended up, as I said, going to, gr- to grad school in the fall of 95 okay. at Indiana, living in Bloomington for three years. I loved it. And then I worked for five years at the School of the Art Institute doing an office job. And then I went in 2003, I went back to teaching. Ah, Uh, And so I was an adjunct for DePaul and Loyola University in Chicago for a long time. And I still am an adjunct, as I said, I think that I teach at Northwestern for their MFA program. And that's an adjunct in my director's job, too, as a part time position. So I chose, you know, I chose location like I was I was just talking about this with one of my, actually one of my Northwestern students before our podcast that I didn't apply for every tenure track job in fiction because I didn't want to mm. live in some of the, the places where they yeah, were located. Yeah, didn't want to like end up I just somewhere that you chose, that Yeah, but I mean, I would have had a tenure track job probably if I had applied for every single one that was available for seven or eight years. I mean, it's so hard to get those jobs and maybe I would have gotten one, but I just realized I didn't think I, I my partner too, he didn't want to live in certain places either if they did, if they didn't have he was afraid of a food desert he's a vegan i'm mostly vegan so there's all these things that yeah. you, and politically we're just thinking like how where where would we want to live yeah so yeah so that influenced that decision to stay as an adjunct to do part-time stuff versus trying right to do something and i foolishly thought i would make enough for my books that i could sustain my pay my bills and teach part-time even if i was teaching ultimately full-time through which I am doing, but it's just for several schools. Yes. But but I couldn't. I mean, I just have had to rely on getting as much teaching as I can because I haven't. Even my advances for Bloomsbury were pretty modest. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the youthful optimism. <laughs> yes, I know. And then it turned out to be like misguided. But at the same time, it's like, well, you don't know. I mean, I it's don't true. have I don't, don't have know. any big regrets. It's just the way it is, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Am I right in remembering that your MFA is in poetry? It is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what, as far as I know, you haven't published a book of poetry. I haven't. I've published quite a few poems. I don't write as many as I used to, pretty rarely. But um, I used to, you know, obviously as an MFA student, I wrote them all the time. So... Um, yeah. Okay. I'm curious, what made you switch from poetry to fiction? Like writing it in public, or were you writing it alongside the poetry? I was, you know, I knew when I went to grad school that I wanted to write fiction. I just wasn't good at it. So I was really writing horrible. <laughs> in my early <laughs> 20s, I was, these were just horribles. It was, I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I just, figured out more. I was able to think about language differently Mm. and poetry was a really good training ground, I guess, for writing fiction. So I think everyone should write in more than one genre uh, if they can. So it was, I knew at the time that I wanted to write fiction. I just didn't know how to do it. So I, I took one fiction workshop for non for fiction, for poetry or nonfiction MFAs. So it was, I was lumped in with a bunch of people who were not there for a fiction MFA. And we, and that was, that was the only fiction workshop I took, but I'd been writing a bit of fiction on my own and I certainly read it. Yes. And that was really the best. And it was trial and error after that. I just kept writing and figuring out what worked. And, you know, I learned a lot just doing it. 
So, which is how we learn anything really. in the 90s and portraits of a few of the people I've made cry came out in 2010. Yes. So you had a big kind of gap between the MFA and then publishing your first book. So were you working, teaching, kind of publishing in literary magazines, just not pursuing getting a book published? Or was it that you hadn't quite like put a collection together? Or what was happening in those kind of interim years? You know, I was writing a lot and I was sending my work out and I did have an agent for a little while and I'd written a couple novels and I'd written lots of short stories. So I had put books together, but nothing had sold with the agent that I was, I think she went out with a novel and a story collection, or maybe it was just a story collection. I can't remember now, but I was publishing in literary journals. I was happy to be published by, I mean, back then I sent everything out through the mail and then you would get your rejection letter in an envelope. <laughs> yes. And um, so I, it was very laborious, but I was just so dogged. I mean, I, I just, but there was a point where I was thinking this was 10 years after grad school to 2008. I was thinking like, is this it? Like a couple stories a year, that's what I'm going to do. And then maybe it will never, happen. but then, Literally, like a few weeks later, I got the call from Carolyn Keebler at the New England Review that Salman Rushdie had picked a story of mine for Best American Short Stories 2008. And it wasn't like every story after that was accepted. Not at all. I mean, I got a rejection letter a few days ago from the Missouri Review. They have never taken a story of mine and I've been mm. sending to them for like 25 years. I mean, they're that's... like your white whale, right? Yeah. I mean, they're not the only one, you know, and I like their work, yes. but I think my work's as good as a lot of the stuff they publish, but you know, you just can't, what do you do? Yes. I mean, it's, I've had, there's, a, there's several journals that I've been submitting to fruitlessly for, and I'm just like, fuck it. I'm going to keep sending stuff because I'm good at this. And I've been in Best American and I've been in O. Henry and I've won yeah. the Grace Paley Prize and I've, I've won the Chicago Writers Association. I mean, there's like so many things that I've done, but you just can't like I'm things that I'm really proud of. But, you you know, editors, they're in a bad mood or they just don't like your work or they have something else that they're publishing that's like your story. And yes. I'm just kind of like, yeah, you know so what, you're factors. wrong. I'm just going to publish this somewhere else. <laughs> But because yes. it's true, like if you read their journals, you're often like, this is okay, but this, my story's better. Like I'm, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've been teaching for almost as long. So I'm like, I have, you know, some, <laughs> some insight into this, but I yes. also know, as I said before, when I write something that if it's not that good, I, I just know it. So I'm not fooling anyone, yes. but that's yes. one of the things you learn as you keep doing it. Like I, you hope, I mean, I hope my students learn that too. Yeah. Yeah, you have to have a healthy dose of self-esteem and know that your work is 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 good enough to be out there, but you also have to be honest with yourself because like sometimes it's not going to be good enough right. to be out there and you have to know the difference and it's kind of like a balancing balancing act. Um Yeah, and I and actually one thing too like the Missouri Review a year and a half ago they kept a story of mine that I was certain was terrible. I'm like, why didn't I withdraw that story? It's just such a shuddering wreck. <laughs> And then I got a note from them. They'd had it for three months or so. And they're like, we loved this and almost made it. Sorry, we didn't accept it. And I was like, what the hell? Are you kidding me? So it's just, 
you just don't know. Like, I, I mean, I mean, then I looked at the story again and I'm like, actually, this isn't as bad as I thought. It's just a different type of story. It's not a kind that I, it's not a type of story that I normally write. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, you know, that's just one of those things where I felt sort of vulnerable about this piece and then they loved it, but they didn't take it because probably someone on their editorial board was like, nah, sorry, let's take this other story about someone growing carrots and rutabagas and their dog runs away. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm just making that up. But, but you just like, it's, you, you realize how incredibly subjective it is. And if you can keep that in yes. mind, as yes. Steve Allman said, it, I did this AWP panel on persistence this past March, a writer's job is to outlast doubt. Yes. It's, it's, yes. there's no two ways about it. Yeah. Yeah. That really rings, that really rings true that the writer's job is to outlast doubt. And that is like, a, that's a continual process. It just happens. It goes on and on and on. Right. Like it doesn't, right. it doesn't stop. Even once you've had a big success, that doesn't mean that it will continue to be that way. So you just kind of keep working through that and not kind of not knowing. Um, yeah. I really um, had like, I really thought like, oh, Bloomsbury is going to keep buying my books and I'm going to keep getting advances for around 40 or 50,000, you know, which is not anything you, I can't live on that because I, <laughs> they divided into three different installments and then you have to pay taxes yes. and you pay your agent. And by the time you get yes. the disbursement, it's around 12 or $13,000 because they break it up into three parts. So over a two year period, usually. So it's, you know, but it, I thought, like, I live modestly. I don't have kids. I have pretty low overhead. But it just didn't happen. So it's hard. People, yeah. people, we expect certain things. And then what the character's really determined by what you do when you don't get what you want. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> we can all be nice when things are going our way. I've said this probably in other interviews I've done, but it's, I remember someone in grad school saying that to me. He's like, our personalities are really revealed through how we handle disappointment. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's great insight. And that and actually is probably a good segue into talking about direct sunlight and the stories in it. Um, I think that you are a very character-based writer. Not that your stories don't have plots because lots of kind of interesting and sometimes very funny things happen in your stories, sometimes very dark, sometimes both at the same time. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading the collection this time, and I, I went back and reread um, Portraits also because it had been a oh, few thanks. years since I read it. Um, and I, it was, it was... I had read it, I think, in 2012, so actually it had been more than a few years, and I, I was kind of reminded, I, I could see that the characters that you had been writing about in portraits had kind of, in a way, grown up and appeared in direct sunlight. Like, there are some through lines that I can see in, um, and this is probably, this is true of every writer, right, in our books, like we kind of return to similar themes and similar, mm -hmm. similar types. But I, I felt a sense of like, I kind of, even though Direct Sunlight is all new characters, and the stories are, are very different, the plots are different, the, the narrators or the protagonists are different in Direct Sunlight. Um, there is a sense of connectivity in in your stories. And I, I, I wonder if it's, if it's how you treat your characters and how you are able to bring um, this sense of like intimacy and honesty to the page. 
for your characters and, you know, a diverse set of characters and different life circumstances, but we, we are kind of allowed into their lives in the same way. Maybe that's what I'm trying to get to is like, you're, you're giving us this window into these characters' lives, um, regardless of where they are or how they're feeling. Um, and your characters are not, I was reading, um, House of Pain last night about the, the house, yes, the couple the buying squirrels. the house and it's falling apart, the squirrels in the wall. Um, and I just thought like this character, this main character, he's so neurotic. He's kind of driving me crazy, but he also like is tapping into something that I think maybe many people have experienced, whether it's about buying a new house or any other thing that you feel neurotic and kind of overwhelmed by. But I think this is one of the things that you do really well is that you kind of allow us into these, these places in your characters that are like humans in general wouldn't want people to necessarily see. And you kind of get in there and you make your characters so, so human, <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank you. which of course they are human, but you know, like it, it's a, uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting. So my one of my questions for you is about when you start writing a story, do you start with a character? Do you start with a plot and then kind of get the characters that come in? Like what's your what is your process like in the beginning? Like how what kind of gets you sitting down at the computer and devoted to a story enough to actually get it, you know, down? Often, you know, this will sound probably not necessarily silly, but capricious perhaps i i begin with a title frequently uh, which yes. is left over from when i was a poetry mfa i would often start a poem based on a title that i liked i would i keep a notebook so i sometimes i jot down plot ideas too or just premises um if i like for house of pain for example i had that title first and then i think i with a p-a-i-n-e as you saw yes. since it's their last yep. name yeah um I thought I want to play on the idea of pain isn't without the E. Um, and then if you have a house, like a money pit scenario, I, I wanted to, that was the idea. And then from there, the story just took off and I realized like, Oh, the home inspector, he's, he was probably drunk, or at least that's what Jim thinks. Even if he wasn't, he's, he suspected he was. And then he didn't tell his wife. And then, of course, they have all these problems then with the house that they just moved into. So it all just kind of like branches out from there. If I have a good title and then I have sort of an idea for what I want to write about. Um, and then things just kind of you layer on. I do I do a layering thing where I'm adding and I'm writing details and I want it to be as lifelike as possible. So, and I think we're just like, I always manage to, I have kind of, I think, even though I probably in this interview, I sound a bit <laughs> aggrieved. I have like, my default mode is the comic, like just yes. my view of life too, for the most part, if I'm not looking at the news anyway, which is increasingly hard to do because it's just been such a shit show for, I don't know how long, 2016, starting then it just really got bad. It was already bad to begin with, yeah. but um. I, I I like celebrating this sort of absurd or the comic potential of of the everyday. That's yes. really sort of my baseline. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I, I was thinking about your characters and the, your use of humor, which is very sly or wry or like it. it's not 
I mean, I would say like in Please Be Advised, I noticed it. I was like, this is, it's funny and it's funny on purpose. Like the comic tone is. That's the is, whole point. That yeah, was really point. meant to be a comedic, <laughs> like every page, joke, joke, joke. Like if, yeah, yes. that was my intention. I'm glad yes. it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for Please Be Advised, I was like, wow, this is like, this is, this is what its aim is. It wants to be funny. Whereas with your stories, I feel like they're kind of slyly funny. I do think you want to be funny, but it's not, it's not. It's, it's it's not banging a reader on the head. Yeah, it's kind of there. And if you if you're if you weren't paying close attention, you might not you'll you would pick up on it, I think, but you wouldn't necessarily notice it in the same way. But I think that's part of why your characters sometimes they're in very intense or unusual situations, but they never kind of tip over into caricature or where you feel like you're like make where where someone might feel like you're kind of exploiting a character's weakness for a laugh it never feels like that which I think is so I I admire it so much I think it's incredible that you can kind of walk that line between like humor and and pathos where you I feel like you really like all of your characters I mean you might not want to like go have a drink with them but you like I can tell that you like them so that that definitely comes through in in and I think every story of yours that I've that I've read, you know, I, I, it definitely feels like you enjoy spending time with these characters that you're creating. I yeah, I mean, even though he's much maligned these days, I I mean, it's still like what you think of him. I who knows? But Woody Allen just he said life is too important to be taken seriously. <laughs> I think yes. he's the one who said that. It might have been Groucho Marx. Um, but uh, he's right. I think, you know, if we really thought about how incredibly strange it is to be alive and the fact that we know we're all going to die at some point, like what a strange <laughs> thing to know. Just yes. that you have to find, I just, it's, I I find like, even when I'm in a bad mood, like if I leave the house, there's something will probably happen where I'll feel like I'll remember a joke or I'll have a laugh about something. Like, I think that's really been what I actually, I said this maybe about one of my other books I was talking about, like the secret to life, like being happy is to be easily amused. (laughs) I really think that's true. Like if people who are unhappy can't laugh anymore. And I think like, if you're going to be happy at all with just because there's so many things that crush us or could crush us if we let them, personal and otherwise, you have to be able to be amused. And my friend Adam McComber, who's a writer as well, he lives here in LA too. He went to Indiana for his MFA. He just said he's like really prioritizes fun. Mm. Cause like, I mean, not all the time, but you know, like (laughs) whether it's like going to the beach for a bike ride or staying home and squeezing in more work, he's like, I got to go for the bike ride. Yes. And I am like, I really admire that. I have a problem balancing that myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a lot of jobs. <laughs> so yes, that's part of the problem. <laughs> I, I can definitely but see. I, but if I weren't earning enough to pay the bills, I would not be a, able to find humor in much. I would not be able to do what I was saying, be easily amused. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You have to be comfortable in order to get to that level where you can be easily yeah. amused, for sure. Um, okay, well, I, I'm... This is slightly related. When you're right, when you're working on stories, do you have um, a sense 
that certain stories will end up together in a collection? Or is it that once you get a certain number of stories, you start to think, oh, I could, you know, this, this story, this story, this story, this story could all go together. Or is it like with the case of direct sunlight, there are definitely some themes that are that kind of recur. So we have, there's love, there's loneliness, there's the family dynamics. I noticed that a lot in these stories. There's a lot of um, parent child uh, relationship and sibling relationship dynamics that come in. Um, infidelity and other romantic entanglements, you know, like marriages mm-hmm. kind of skidding out or, or kind of not even skidding, just kind of like <laughs> sputtering out um, marriages that are happy, but the other person is a, a force from their past arrives and kind of disrupts the, their feelings. Oh, right. You're thinking of the petting zoo. The yeah. petting zoo. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then also the, the one where the marriage was kind of sputtering out, that was the common cold where it's like they've been married for a long time and not that long ago, the protagonist can imagine her best friend and her husband happy together. But now it's just, he's become so quirky that she can't even deal with him. There's like, there's a, so the themes, then I'm trying to think, well, there's one more. Oh, friendships. Friendships come, come up a lot here. And then also I, I had a sense of, and maybe this was part of, thinking about portraits versus direct sunlight, the the difference in the stories, there's a kind of a nostalgia a little bit in direct sunlight that I noticed, but the stories themselves, like despite all these, these themes that are kind of connective, the stories themselves are very different. The characters are very different. The life circumstances are very different. So I'm curious, like, did you get 12 stories and just think like, okay, here's my next collection. Or do you kind of know what you're, are you writing towards a collection? Not really. You know, I mean, this will sound, I hope it doesn't sound too self-congratulatory, but I, a friend of mine I used to teach with when I was a visiting professor at University of Illinois, he once, this was like eight years ago, he's like, you've published 70 stories. And I've published, and at that point, I've only, I had published two books of stories. And each, the first book had 10 and the second book had 13. And then since then I've published probably 15 or 20 more stories. So I've written and published, well, I've written probably a few hundred stories and I've published yeah. over a hundred now, but all told I have 35 stories published in the, between the three collections. Yes. So I just, and actually for Direct Sunlight, Ma'am and um, Wedding Party, I basically wrote for the book because my editor okay. wanted a couple of stories that hadn't been published yet. So ah, okay. I was working on them and I hadn't really thought at the time, you know, that these would fit in direct sunlight, but she liked them and we put them in. So, and then she was hoping we could publish, like, for example, Electric Lit recommended reading published Wedding yes. Party just before oh, the book came wonderful. out. wonderful. Yeah. And then a, another Chicago magazine, ACM, published Ma'am, I think the day the book came out. So that was her calculation, which was great, you know, a good idea. But I just really think like the stories that I think are the strongest of those that I've written that also sort of tonally in some way work because I have some other more satirical stories that I was thinking about, like, oh, I could publish this. But then I was like, this doesn't work. It's too cutesy. Or or there was another story that was too much like one of the pieces that I did want to put in direct sunlight. So, or I just felt like, there's one that I had in, in an earlier version of this book that I t- couple that I took out. So, okay. cause I just thought like these now that two or three years have passed since I've been trying to place this book, I just don't know if they work. So then wedding party and ma'am ended up being the, the two that 
replaced some that I removed a couple. So, or a few, actually a few that I removed. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, you're not, as you write, you're not thinking like, okay, well I have this story with this theme and I have this story with this theme and this story with these characters. And now I need something to kind of balance it. Maybe as you get towards the end and, and you were kind of recalibrating what the collection looked like overall, that started to happen, but it's not like a conscientious thing that you're right. thinking. Forward. And the book over the years, like I've submitted it to different book contests, like the Drew Hines um, and a couple of others. It was, it had different titles. It was first called actually the petting zoo. And then it was called the common cold, which are two stories. As you know, you mentioned yeah. them, they're still in the book, Yes, but then direct sunlight that I think that's the first story in the collection. I wrote that in 20, I think I wrote it in 2019. Okay. And then I published it in 2020 after the pandemic had hit. So um, Boulevard published that in the fall, I think of 2020. So, so yeah, because, yeah. What was the thinking behind that as the title versus the petting zoo or the common cold? Well, I mean, I can imagine why the common cold would. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like that? it because of the double entendre, like, the, yes. you know, like the virus, obviously, but also just like coldness and, you know, and it, but it was, it was, it just, I thought direct sunlight worked better. I don't know. I just, my editor at Northwestern, Marissa Siegel, was also happy with it. So we stuck. I thought, well, it could be called Wedding Party. Like, we could call it that. But she's like, no, I, I like direct sunlight. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I think it works. And thinking about that story, so something that I didn't see it as much here, although this story did make, uh, direct sunlight did make me think of it, is that you seem very interested in fame and like, or f- famous people, fame, uh, people adjacent to um, famous adjacent to famous people or affected by others fame um i guess mega millions a little bit too there's the lottery win which is its own sort of fame Mm -hmm. and um but with direct sunlight i i i thought it was very interesting that it's it's a 9-11 story but it's also not a 9-11 i mean 9-11 plays a a, a big part of the story because the character's dad has died in 9-11 but the actual focus of the story is on something that happens 15 years later with this discovery about this other family that he had. Um, and the, the direct sunlight there's, I'm always looking for kind of title, like title connections as I read. So there's that moment with the, with the, uh, the new sister's grandmother where she gives the character a, an African violet and says like, it doesn't like direct sunlight, but it needs bright indirect light. And I thought that was so kind of telling for that character it was almost like he he didn't he wouldn't have done well in direct sunlight like he needed bright indirect light it's like how much it's like the grandmother kind of could almost tell like how much attention can I give this like how much can I mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. force my way into this I, and I you know I'm you maybe weren't thinking about any of no, this I was. you were writing oh you, that was yeah I was thinking about like secrecy and yes. and people exposing I mean and that story was actually inspired by the a podcast I heard about Ken Feinberg who was the attorney who dispersed money to 9-11 the families of 9-11 victims and he found out that there was a fireman who had two families who did not know about each other wow and he never told them he paid both women the three million dollars wow 
but so then that was also based on something that actually happened. Yes, I, I wonder there's a movie. that too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a movie about that whole thing called Worth. It stars Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci. It came wow. out a couple of years ago. It's yeah. good. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. I was, fa- yeah. I was fascinated by that. And I did wonder if it was something that you had invented as, as is your, uh, <laughs> as you are allowed to do as a fiction writer, or if it was something that had actually happened and that you were kind of. Kind of I was, yeah, I, I was really, I don't normally base stories on things I've heard happened in real life. But in that case, I was like, wow, that would be so crazy. What would it be like to be that guy's children yes. from his family? That's actually publicly acknowledged. Like what would, yeah. but in, I think in real life, unless it's since happened, the families did not find out that. They, oh, they don't know about yeah. each other. Yeah, he didn't tell them. Ken Feinberg did not tell them. He just paid them each. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I like with direct, with, with what happens in your story, there's a, it's such a, a strange coincidental moment in which the truth is actually revealed. And then the characters kind of have to deal with the aftermath, the fallout of that. And it's not, you didn't wrap it up tidily, which is, I think we'll talk about endings in a little bit. Cause I think you do your endings so, so well, which is, it's hard to do in a short story, that kind of open-endedness, like you didn't wrap it up tidily, but there was that moment where I was like, oh, the grandmother understands that this situation does not, is not capable of handling direct sunlight, but it can handle bright indirect light. And she's kind of like using an object to kind of insert that into the story. I thought that was so, so well done. endings but I'm going to ask you first about some of the some of the stories in direct sunlight are maybe a little more formally inventive than in your previous two collections although I did flip through virginity of famous men and see that you had an experimental cv story in there and I was like oh I forgot about that one though that was (laughs) formally experimental but in direct sunlight there's in the park which is all emails all written by almost all written by one person right or she references the one email she does get back from the person she's writing to right they're all hers yeah yeah which yeah. i thought was was really fun and interesting like a take on on what it's like to email people right i mean there's a lot of other some other stuff going on there too but um and then you have dear kelly bloom which has an advice columnist it's not all written as advice columnist answers but like that plays a part in the story and then wedding party which you referenced earlier and um that one has kind of like a multiple pov thing going on where it jumps from point of view for the different um wedding party guests and i'm i'm so i guess i'm i'm kind of curious how you play when you do these formal kind of experiments with your stories, how do you kind of play with that without losing the story? And maybe you'll reference, please be advised as you talk about this, since that was all memos and that was another kind of formal, formally experimental kind of take on a novel. Um, So like, how do you balance that? Um, You know, I, thank you for asking. I, I'm glad that the story, the narrative wasn't subsumed by the form. And that's really just, you know, I think of them as chapters in a sense, like each email is a chapter. And and as long as you kind of have this narrative trajectory in mind, I think you can hold on to the the story and the plot 
<clears throat> and, but the great thing about different forms is you can write, like if the story's in third person, when you're writing an email or you're writing a letter or a resume, it's, it's in first. So it's one way you can do a point of view switch within a story that is some other point of view. And also, I just think the playfulness of form, I'm actually teaching an innovative prose forms class this fall for UCLA extension. And then I'm the other, what I'm teaching at Stanford is a flash fiction class. I think having this feeling of renewal with each Mm. short piece, it can lead to a focus and also sort of a playful associative logic that I learned from writing poetry. So it sort of harkens back to my earlier days as a writer of, of writing and writing poem, poems instead of prose and feeling that narrative compression. I usually wrote narrative poems. I had, there was a lyrical quality to some of them, but I was often writing poems that were somewhat narrative. So that if you, if you can just sort of hold on to the story and then you have a strong voice that's that's for me i once i hear the character's voice which can happen right away and i hope i mean that's what i'm aspiring to if i hear the voice in the very first line whether i'm writing straight for a linear narrative or if i'm writing a resume an annotated resume or a, or a memo that's for me i think the baseline like if i have the voice i can write the story in whatever form you know i'm deciding on yeah and does that is that true for when you're writing in third person too? Like vo- voice is less important in third person, but still important. So do you find that that's the case? I do. Yeah, there's this one. I guess it was first person. I was thinking the st- story of mine called "What's His Name," and that's in *Virginity of Famous Men*. That's a really playful story. That's sort of off kilter. It's first person, but I think with third, like *House of Pain*, as you were saying before. Jim, the main character, he's just kind of a ding dong. Like, so I, but I had fun with him. And like, as you said, I was trying not to condescend to him or have a mean joke at his expense. I just, I just, I really feel sympathy for my characters, Mm. even if they are neurotic. Yes. Which most of us are, I think, (laughs) if we're being honest. Yes. Yeah. Especially as writers, most writers, yeah, most writers are neurotic. Let's, let's face it. Yes. Yeah. All right. That's I. Um, okay. So it's just kind of like hanging on to that narrative thread and that the, vo- the voice is a very important part of that. I think this actually might be something I learned from you in, when you were my mentor in, the, in Pacific's MFA program, which is that character and plot are kind of intimately connected. Like you can't tear them apart. So if you can hang on to the narrative and the voice is involved in that, that kind of speaks to that idea of like the character and the plot can't be I mean, it can be, but in in a lot of good writing, character and plot are so kind of enmeshed that they carry yes. each other along. Yes. If you really see your character, if you're in their head, I guess, it just thing. I mean, it's it's a skill. Like, it's not like everyone who sits down can do it, and it takes a while to get good at it. And some, some chapters or some stories, it happens more easily than others. But if you can really understand this character I know when I've written something I'm like that's too much of a shortcut like Mm. that's because I was I'm working on a novel and I have this profession assigned to the main character and I was like this is not this can't this is not the right way to go but I kept writing it and then finally 
when we were away last week, I'm like, okay, I figured it out. This is not what <laughs> I have to ever do something. I know what I want her to do. Yes. So I had to mull that over for a bit, but I know when I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. Mm. It, there's a voice, you know, it's like that. It's like your conscience basically saying like, this isn't right. Yes. Don't do this. Don't be lazy. Yeah. Yeah. That create your creative mind. I always think of that as like my creative mind. It's like, it knows more than I do, <laughs> you know, like you just have yeah. to like kind of listen yeah. to it. Yeah. Yeah. So I know um, from when we worked together is that you're a big Alice Monroe fan. You had me read a bunch mm-hmm. of Alice Monroe books. So I know you're a big fan of hers. Yes. I love her. Um, and I think yeah. your story, your stories are, are not like hers, but they are like, like hers in the sense that when I get into them, I feel almost as though I'm inside a novel. Like they have the kind of satisfaction that a novel can have where I feel very invested in the characters. I feel like you are able to get your characters kind of arc and life and voice in there, but then you also have just a lot of other kind of facets that give your short stories a sense of like fullness or richness. Um, And then as I was thinking about this as like comparing short stories to novels, I came across this quote from Brandon Taylor, who I think is associated with electric literature. And he said, a short story is not a literary snack to a novel's more substantial meal or a good short read, but a system of caves into which you can shout one note and from which emerges eerie ghostly echoes that both converge upon and diverge from that first perfect sound. And I thought that that very well encapsulated your stories also. So it's kind of almost this contradictory sense of like, you have this like narrative richness that makes me feel like I'm being immersed into a novel. But then you're also doing this thing where, you know, the story starts in one place and it ends up somewhere else and it has this kind of echo. Um, So in regards to your intention, and I know we've talked about writing process, but like in regards to your story's intentions, do you know where you're going when you start a story? Like, do you know what your end's going to be? No. So you just dive in and kind of figure it out? Yeah. Even Flash, like I'm working on a piece right now that it'll probably be around 2000. I mean, that's a little longer than Flash, but I'm just not really sure. I sort of know now that I'm about halfway done. I'm like, okay, I think I know where I'm... I better know because I only have about a thousand words left. I better figure (laughs) it out. But usually for longer short stories, I I actually don't think I ever know where they're going to go. That's why you have to really understand. I think you have to get the voice right and you have to get that first line or that there just has to be a lot of precision. Like you just, I have to be able to set the character somewhere in circumstances that are imaginable. Like you can see them in your mind pretty quickly, Mm. like within the first couple lines Yes, and hear the voice, whether it's third or first. Yeah. That's why second person drives me crazy. I'm like, I, and a lot of people just persist in writing it and some of them are good at it, but I'm just like, I don't want to write a second person story. I find it mad. Yeah. Have you, have so you ever I, written I, a story in second person? I think I have like a couple times, but I, yeah, I, I mean, maybe I'd like it more. I actually really like collective first person Ooh, with we. Yes. Yeah. I think that's really interesting when it's in Julie Otsuka did it with Buddha in the attic. Yes. And then this writer, Karen Brown, who has several books, but um, she's, I don't think she's read as widely as she should be. She's done some in her book, little sinners, which won the Prairie schooner short story collection prize. She has a couple, at least one or two collective first person. I love that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a neat POV that 
I'd like to see a lot more than second person. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you don't know where you're going as you go. Do you write a full first draft before you go back in and start your layering kind of phase? Or do you layer as you go? I layer as I go. Like I, the piece that I'm working on now, though, again, that's a pretty short story. I wrote the first 400 words a couple nights ago. And then the next day I went back to it and I, cause I was thinking when I closed the file for the night, I'm like, this is, this needs work. But then I went in the, the next day and I started putting a lot more context for this family and this situation that I was writing about. And I was like, okay, now I can see it. So it's working, I think. But I'm not done. So it's still like, I've, I'm not confident I'm going to get it right, but I'm a little more confident than I was when I started. Yeah. But it just, you should do what works for you. I yeah. mean, that's really <laughs> yes. like, I think people, like we're always hoping someone will give us a magic bullet. And, and I'm just like, we just have to feel our way through this. It's like a going down a dark hallway. You can feel the walls. Yes. But you just don't know how long the hallway is. <laughs> or that you could use the EL Doctoro. Yes. Um, the with the headlights. Yeah. Yeah. You can see ahead of you just enough. Yeah. But you can't see the destination until you get until there. You get there. Yeah. Yeah, I was I'm cur I was curious about the like finishing a draft versus layering as you go. Do you ever and maybe this is how you know a story just isn't working. Do you ever like kind of halfway through the process you're just like sorry this story isn't 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 going to do its thing and you just abandon it? It's happened. <laughs> yeah, it's happened with novels too. Mm. I mean, I have written quite a bit of a novel and I'll be like this is just not. I am actually working on as I said a couple different novels and one of them is actually not far from and it's actually, I think my partner's like, why aren't you finishing that book? Like, I really like that book. And he's my, he's my best reader. He's really my only first reader too, but he will, he will just say like, this is good, or this isn't good. And he's always right. And he's like, this is a really good, this is going well. Why are you? And I'm just like, I don't know. Cause I probably won't be able to sell it mm. to a, you know, a big press, despite the fact <laughs> it's maybe one of the best things I've written. So it's, it's like that like it's fury. I just feel like fury. I'm just kind mm. of like, I'm going to write a book that I love and then I'm not going to be able to fucking sell yeah. it. So you, you have to just like, if I want to finish it, I just need to finish it and not worry about where, what happens to it because, but it's hard to have your heart broken. Yes. It's happened to me several times in the last eight years where I was like, I wrote a book. I love my editor at, at Bloomsbury tried to buy it and then she couldn't. Yeah. This happened a couple times with her. Yeah. And then meanwhile, I'm seeing other books she's publishing with other authors. And I'm like, I wish I were still in that family, mm. but I'm not. Yeah. So you just, you have to deal with all these things that are not related to how good you are as a writer. And I just think like, as a writer, I'm competent. Sometimes I'm maybe very good. Yeah. And maybe better than a lot of people my age writing fiction, but it doesn't matter if you're not selling enough books for them to keep publishing you. Yeah. So it's you like, I just, but I also feel like, you know what, like with the Missouri Review rejections and the other journals who've been rejecting me for 30 years, I'm just like, you're fucking wrong. Like I'm a better <laughs> writer than you're giving me credit for. Like I am yes. a really good writer. So fuck you. I'm just going to keep sending stuff out. Like that's the attitude you have to have. But I also feel like I can back it up. Yeah. Like I will not write garbage and send it out. I might write garbage, but I'm not going to send that out. I'll send out the better stuff. Yes. So, I mean, and again, I sound like probably a, a nutcase or an egomaniac, <laughs> but these are the dialogues I think we have that we don't want to air publicly. Yes. So yeah. here I am airing it publicly. <laughs> but I'm also like, you know what? I've been doing this a long time and I've dealt with so much disappointment. So it's just, you just have to be tougher than anyone you know, basically. Who's, you just have to be the toughest person because it's, you get 
you get kicked around a lot despite appearances and all the great things on my resume. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just hard. It's never no been There's no real easy. guarantee, I guess, right? Like that's, right. and that's what it is. Like you have right. to have the confidence because there's no real guarantee from, right. from book right. to book. And you can't let yourself be completely overwhelmed by bitterness yeah. because, you know, I'll look at the New York times book review and I'm like, they used to review my books. They don't do it anymore. And I'm, I wrote a book as good as that one they're reviewing, I'm sure. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where you have to be like, you know what? Yeah. You have to be able Onward. to kind of turn off the outside world, I guess, too, when you're right. You have to have the confidence yeah. in yourself, but then you also have to know that, you know, none of that matters when it's you and the page writing the book, like in order to get it out, you know, like it does, it does matter, of course, but like in the actual act of writing, you have to kind of like, let all of that go in order to get in there. And exactly. And also people will be like, well, I've never been reviewed in the New York Times and I've never won an award and you've gotten all those things. And it's kind of like, yes, but it's like dinner. You have to eat dinner every <laughs> night. So yeah. yes, all those great things happened. Yes, I had all those great dinners. But in order to feel like I'm living the life that I hope to be, that I want to live, I have to keep doing those things and getting those things that I that I used to get. Like, but then sometimes you won't. So you just have to find another way. Like I'm just like doing bookish, my Substack. Yeah. That's actually helpful. Yeah. Knowing that I have almost, I have like 600 subscribers and I just started it a few months yeah. ago. Well, it's super informative too. Cause I, I a friend you. of mine actually referenced it in, in the chat and we were talking and I was like, wait, Christine has a Substack. How did I not know this? So I went and subscribed <laughs> to it and I, I find it super helpful. I love reading and that you're bringing in other voices, other authors and having interviews and like talking about the world, you know, as it were, it's very informative. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I, I know some people are just like another post, but I, for now, I'm still doing two a week. Yeah, no, two a week. Um, That's a good number. I think, yeah, I mean, it's maybe a lot because some people who subscribe have like, they subscribe to like 200 sub stacks. I'm like, there's no way. Like, how are they possibly reading? Yeah. <laughs> they're not, they're not reading it, but okay. They could still, I'm happy they're subscribing. Yeah. Maybe they will read it one yeah. day. Yeah. I think a lot of those things end up getting bookmarked and then like consumed because yeah. Substack has an yeah. app. I had to take it off my phone actually. Cause I get, I was like using it like Instagram. You get in. I really couldn't get yeah. off it. I know <laughs> there's so much, there's so much stuff on there. That's interesting. Yes. There's a lot of really great I agree. content. So. So, yeah, but I think that, you know, when I read bookish, I think like this is someone who's like in this world and knows a lot of people and has experienced a lot of things. And I feel in very capable hands. And I think that that's one of the one of the nicest things about reading it. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what you're doing is important. I think that these you're writing too. you're writing is you're writing terrific work. I loved XO. Ah, and thank you. What shines from it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so my final question is, oh, you've referenced it actually a little bit, but like, what's next? What are you, what are you working on? What are you kind of thinking towards? Do you have any books set up to come out in the next not, year? Or not, so, or? No, not fortunately. I want to give everyone a break. They <laughs> bought, they had to buy three books <laughs> in the last eight or nine months. I, I was thinking of publishing one of those novels that I wrote that I, that I mentioned at the beginning of our talk I with 713 books, but my editor and I just talked about it and he, he agrees that I should try to publish with a bigger press because, you know, a lot of it's just money. Like I, I want to be able to not be in the red yeah. when I publish my next book, but we'll see. I mean, it's, it's really, really, really hard to sell fiction if you're in a position like mine 
where you're not a bestseller. And I don't have like a million followers on, I'm not even on Instagram. So yeah. 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 But I also, I'm just kind of like, you have to measure your, like what, what is important to you? Like I, I just, I don't want to, that's not that important to me. (laughs) It's just social media is fine. And I enjoy it to a certain extent, but but I'm just working on a new, another new novel and writing some short stories. I, I just am trying to take a one day at a time approach to this new piece that I'm, and I need to finish that other one my partner likes. Yeah. I, think, I think it's good. I published the first chapter in the Beloit Fiction Journal. Oh, nice. But it's about, it's about, it's very like, it's about two friends who are, one of whom is a sex worker and the other one is not a sex worker, but she's sort of been lured into it because she needs money and she only does it occasionally. And so... It's, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's about other things too, but it's a book that I think like, who's, I don't know if anyone would buy this. I have not been a sex worker. So <laughs> I'm sure if I had been, people would be like, oh my God, we're going to buy it. Yeah. But, yeah. If it was a yeah, memoir, I don't know. you could probably, you could probably sell it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But at the, yeah, at the same time, he's like, these are good characters. And so yeah. I will see. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Cause that's another one of your themes. We didn't touch on it cause it didn't come up as much, I think in direct sunlight as, as in your previous books but that like women finding themselves in difficult situations that's something you do so well in your stories like that's right because you read the anthology potpourri yes. that's sort of that's a similar that's the book that I'm working yeah. on that Adam's like finish they, it that it's thematically linked yes yeah. yeah I just think like those those are really fascinating situations yeah. and so much of characters revealed and that's what keeps bringing me back to that subject yeah, and the the opening story in portraits with the the woman who yeah. meets the man yeah. at the theater, and then he just it's like almost like Bartleby, but in in like a sex situation where he's like, no, yeah. nope, sorry, I'm not leaving. <laughs> um, but yeah, you do you do that so well. Okay, good. So I'm I'm glad to know there's more of that, <laughs> more of that coming yeah. as you yeah. as you kind of work. I, I mean, there certainly is interest in it. I just but I just think I'd have to find the, an editor who's willing to overlook my sales track. Yeah. Which these days they're not in New York. Those editors are not. I mean, maybe one day there I'll be able. It'll be a long enough lag, or I yeah. I don't know what'll happen. I'm that, I'm trying to be hopeful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. You never know like how the market, and that's the other thing. It's like kind of in the same way that you have to be able to tune out all the outer world in order to just get the work done. You never know what the market's going to do in the next five, ten years. Like it, it doesn't right. necessarily have to follow the track it's been following. So you never know like what might what might what you've written that might suddenly be like oh this is like a thing people want to publish books about this and here here I have this book that's ready right. so right you're right and also like i even though i say like i wrote a book as good as that and why didn't they review my book it's so subjective yes. like i'm obviously only able to be in my own mind yes. but um yeah so but i yeah you just i that's the thing you don't know like no one knows anything as william goldman famously said about the film industry (laughs) yeah yeah you never you really never know i mean i guess some people who are like that's their job and they pay attention to market for you know market forecasts and trends and all that stuff they have some maybe idea and predictions that do come true but i think some of it like we just can't imagine what's going to happen so it you know right just kind of like keep doing what you're doing that feels good and then you know, maybe eventually there's there's that place for it, that audience, that that desire for that, whether it's subject or or something else that you know, fiction could make a huge resurgence in the next ten years. We have no idea. I I mean, it's not gone anywhere. It's just the type of fiction that they're buying. You know, like a lot of speculative 
a lot of fantasy type situations yeah. and I don't are you ever tempted to write in that style because I got like a little bit of the haunted house thing for house of pain you know oh, really? and then there's one I think in portraits that was was it also a haunted house one it was towards the there, end actually in virginity of famous men there's a story about a ghost okay maybe. Roger Weber would like to stay yeah. but there might be in portraits I don't know I don't, yeah, I don't. Are you ever tempted to, to kind of push farther in that direction, kind of knowing? A little, yeah. yeah. It's it would be a learning curve for me. I I don't read a lot of genre, very little. So I I think I'd have to study it. Um, yeah. Before I really had the hubris to undertake it, but um, yeah, I and I've always sort of fantasized. I like oh, I want to write a story that's suitable for submission to fairy tale review. Ooh, yeah. But I just haven't tried to yeah. do that yet. I've tried a few times and so. always been rejected, but yeah, I love their oh, stuff. I think you just have to keep trying. Yeah. yeah. You just keep trying. Like, I mean, I'm stubbornly still sending work to the Missouri Review and a couple of other journals. All right. That was Sarah Rausch's conversation with Christine Sneed. You can get Christine Sneed's new story collection, Direct Sunlight, wherever you buy books. And you can get a copy of Sarah Rausch's XO from us at autofocuslit.com slash books. And while you're there, you can check out the rest of our catalog and maybe buy some. It's a great way to support the podcast. And if you want something else to listen to today, you can check out my interview with Sarah Rausch on this podcast that was episode 48 and once again I encourage you to review us or rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever app you're using right now okay that's it Thanks for listening. Till next time.